Hi, everyone. This is Cynthia. And before we get into this month's Q&A episode, I'm just together with Tricia and Zuzana, our technical producer today. Unfortunately, not in person in our usual studio, but speaking via Zoom. So we see each other's faces, but we're not together in person. And we look forward to things returning to normalcy. You might notice the sound quality is different. So please bear with us until we're back in our studios. And second, we wanted to just give a few words to uh, coronavirus. And we know Tricia has gathered some thoughts on that. So Tricia, if you're ready to kick off a discussion, we just want to touch on that before we get into our, our usual episode that we prepared for this month on Q&A. That sounds good, Cynthia. Thank you. This is a tough time for women to be pregnant. There is no doubt about it. It's a tough time for all of us to be living through what is happening right now. But I think the level of anxiety and fear for women who are about to give birth or who are newly pregnant, um, I, I really feel for those women and the, and the worries they might be having. So I wanted to just say what, what we currently know and while we really don't know all that much yet, because this is still so new, remember this is a new virus. It's not something that we have ever seen exactly before. Um, and it's rapidly evolving as it moves through the various countries. We're getting new, new information and we don't really have much of our own data yet from the United States, but we do have a little bit of information from China. And the good news is, the really good news, is that women in general, and particularly um, younger women in the childbearing age, seem to be protected from getting severely sick from this illness. They certainly can catch it, just the same as anyone, um, but they don't seem to get the severity of symptoms. I did recently actually read that women in general don't seem to get as sick from it as men which is really interesting. I didn't hear that. That's interesting. Yeah, it's new. I mean, new stuff is just coming out every day. But that is true for the vast majority of all diseases. Women do tend to survive more than men. So I wonder if it's just the same thing playing out. We know that. Okay. Um, so before we go into any more detail on this, I just want to be sure that the main message that is getting across to our pregnant women is that... Um, the data we have so far seems to indicate that pregnant women fall into the same risk category as women in general in their age group. I will say, however, that because women who are pregnant are at higher risk of, of other respiratory illnesses like the flu, they should take extra precautions. They really should be taking this um, to the highest level of um, hygiene self-protection. The other thing that is important to mention though, that women who are at higher risk, who have a high risk pregnancy are definitely at higher risk of getting more severely sick from a coronavirus infection. So that would include women with asthma, diabetes, autoimmune disease, possibly hypertension. We really don't know we don't have good statistics on this information yet, but women who do have underlying health conditions should consider themselves at high risk for this illness. So Tricia, should pregnant moms cancel their prenatal appointments now to minimize exposure? I don't 
think I would suggest that all pregnant mothers cancel their prenatal visits at this time. I think that there may be some practices who are delaying the interval between visits. It's still important to get your prenatal care. And certainly if you have a high risk pregnancy or a complication of pregnancy, or you're having some sort of symptom of pregnancy that feels abnormal, you should definitely be seeing your care provider. I think a lot of practices are probably moving toward a telemedicine approach and doing some of their prenatal visits um, through a, a digital mode, which is great. It may be a worthwhile consideration to delay that appointment, but that really needs to be a decision that's made between the woman and her healthcare provider. I can't make a general recommendation on that. So do you think it's a time for some women to consider home birth to avoid birthing in a hospital and minimizing the exposure? That's an interesting question. I do know from a number of home birth midwives that um, many women are looking to move toward having a home birth. I think that the hospital feels like a potentially scary place for pregnant women and a high risk of exposure. Um, and I would say that that's probably true that the risk of exposure is higher, but I do believe that labor and delivery units are taking all the proper precautions to reduce women's exposure. And again, these pregnant women don't seem to be at higher risk of becoming severely sick from the illness, uh, nor do we see transmission of the virus in utero from mother to baby at this point. It doesn't, there aren't any cases documented of that at this point. Um, the good news also is that it doesn't seem to be transmitted in breast milk. If a mother is positive for coronavirus, and we know that lots of people could be positive and not know it, there is the risk of transmitting it to their infant through normal close contact. So even though we don't have much information about this right now, it is another opportunity just to recognize that nature does have all these mechanisms in place to keep us unusually healthy and safe and protected, particularly through pregnancy, childbirth, and that newborn stage. And your baby benefits from all the antibodies you produce from every cold, every flu, anything you ever develop. Um, so nature is always on a mission to make you healthy. Your thoughts matter. Trusting in your body matters. I know this can feel scary, but it is really important to be aware of the messages you tell yourself, the thoughts that are in your head, and do trust nature and your body to keep you as safe as possible while taking careful precautions through this unusual circumstance right now. Yeah, so we will continue to keep you updated as we get new information and we encourage you to follow us on our Instagram account at down to birth show where we have already posted some information and we'll continue to post the most recent information as we get it. All right. Thanks so much, guys. And with that, let's head on into our monthly Q&A episode now. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do. But how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Trisha, we got a question. We got a bunch. 
We got a bunch of questions in through <laughs> our Instagram. Yay. Ready? I have one for you. Can I start? Yeah, please. Well, I'll read. I was recently told by a nurse that if you've had surgeries within the uterus, you are automatically going to have a C-section because you are at risk for a ruptured uterus. My next appointment with my doctor is in a couple of weeks, and I plan to ask her about this. I'm just curious. The nurse said it would be standard in her office. Any advice? What would be standard? A a C-section? I think that's what she means. So the thing here is that um, it depends on the type of scar. Complex uterine scars are a relative contraindication to vaginal birth. So what that means is that they're not an absolute contraindication. It doesn't mean 100% no chance of vaginal birth, but it does mean that there is a strong possibility that you would have to have a cesarean birth depending on the type of scar. So we know that women who are given C-sections today are given the type of scar that's transverse and low in the uterus, and that's the reason that we can have um, vaginal birth after cesarean. If you've had uterine surgery that's more complicated and involves a um, uh, a scar that is up and down in the uterus as opposed to transverse, that would be a potential reason for not being able to have a vaginal birth. Do they do those anymore? Yeah. So if you had to have, let's say you had to have large fibroids, fibroids. removed. Yeah. Sometimes they just, they have to cut the way they have to cut. That, I'm not a surgeon, so I can't get into too much detail on that, but I would say that it is um, very worth having a conversation with your doctor about it. It's something that you need to discuss. It probably depends on your doctor, depends on their experience, depends on the, the type of scar, the, the length of the scar. Um, so yeah, I definitely do know of cases of women who have had fibroids removed and are unable to have vaginal birth. I've known several who had fibroids removed and did have a vaginal birth as well. Does that surprise you? No, it just depends on where, where they are in the universe. And it, where they are in the universe. <laughs> where they are in the universe. It's, um, it just, can you be more specific, please? <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, it, it, it's really dependent on, I think, the, um, the size of the scar, the placement of the scar. It's, it's worthy of a lengthy conversation about risks and benefits, for sure. And, of course, it's not all scars are the same. So it really does make a difference what type of uterine scar we're talking about. Let's, let's uh, touch on the next one. I think this question is for you, so I'm going to read it. All right. I'm feeling a lot of stress around giving birth, not because of the birth itself, but because of the location. Our original plan was to birth in a hospital, which I was fine with until I started listening to your podcast and reading more about midwives. We've called a birth center near our home and had good conversations, and I'm very excited at the prospect of birthing there. The problem is my husband isn't fully on board. He's actually adamant about birthing in a hospital. I like the idea of medical apparatuses nearby, but I'm worried that birthing with an OB in a hospital makes me more likely to end up with a C-section. I'm especially concerned they're going to successfully manipulate me into agreeing to interventions I know I don't want. But if they tell me I'm putting my baby's life in danger, I know I would do whatever they want. I'm not sure exactly what I am asking, but would love to know if you have any thoughts. <laughs> sure, we have some thoughts on this. I always have thoughts. Yeah, we definitely have some thoughts. So you you get it started. Um, let's break it down a little bit. I have to say, now that you know, and presumably your husband knows, that your 
physiology is driven by your thoughts. And your physiology has a direct impact on how this birth will go. For example, if you're calm and safe and relaxed, you will secrete more oxytocin. You will dilate more easily. Even though this is your baby as a couple and you're equally responsible for the outcome of this birth and you're equally responsible for the wellness of the baby, I do happen to have the opinion that the mother's choice should carry a little more weight. And I think both people in the partnership should respect that perspective because we know for a fact that your thoughts and your feelings will have a direct physiologic impact on this birth. So it really, in my opinion, is a must to choose the place where the mother feels safest. Now, for her to have that place and not have the full support of her partner puts her in a state of stress, so that's counterproductive. We definitely would like to get you two on the same page. The least you should both do is really explore that option. So I once had a couple where the dad wanted to have a home birth and the mom didn't. They were really at conflict with it because he was a chiropractor. He was like really informed a lot of things and he really believed it was the safest and best best place for them. And she wasn't there emotionally at all. I had a talk with him one day and I was like, look, if she isn't going to feel safe at home, that's not going to bring you the results you're looking for. I don't know if it's worth mentioning. They did end up exploring home birth and having a really nice home birth, but typically it's the mom who might want to explore a birthing center. And sometimes the father says, absolutely not. We're birthing in a hospital. A little more stock should go into what she wants. Um, whatever you do, tour the birthing center together. Bring all your questions. Let your husband ask everything that's concerning him because I'm sure he has a whole list of really legitimate questions. What do we do in a case of emergency? What if the baby has to get to a NICU? What if you want medical intervention or need medical intervention? How quickly can they get that for you? The other thing you mentioned was, that sense that if you're birthing in a place where, uh, like in a hospital, and they tell you your baby's life is in danger, you're right. We can't do much about that. You know, it's one thing to go in there informed of some of the reasons that, reasons that um, intervention isn't necessary. But you're right. We're really vulnerable. And if someone says we need to speed this up, we need to do a C-section, we can't really stand up to that too well if we don't have all the information they have. So you have to learn to ask questions. But again, this always comes back to hiring the right provider because you shouldn't be feeling that way once you hire someone who you really know um, respects you and understands what you want for your birth. So if you do birth in a hospital, it sounds like you haven't found the right provider yet in a hospital. So I think there's a lot of middle ground for you and your husband. Check out the birthing center. And if you do decide together to stick with a hospital birth, I think your work isn't done yet in finding the provider because you wouldn't be going into it with all these feelings like, well, what if they just say this and then I'm at a loss? Yeah, that really stuck out to me. The, just the language of um, feeling that you could be successfully manipulated into agreeing to interventions to me is a red flag for that provider-client relationship. You shouldn't feel that your provider is going to manipulate you into anything. Also, in my experience... We, I had a lot of reluctant husbands come in for the first initial home birth consultation when I was working as a home birth midwife. And generally, by the end of the consultation, they had a very different feeling. Because once you explore the facts, it's hard to argue with the safety of home birth or the safety of a birth center birth. 
There, there's also middle ground in that many hospitals have midwives, and that would also be a good option. Ninety-five percent of nurse midwives work in the hospital. That idea that um, midwives are hippy dippy out in the back country birth workers is because that is that's how birth was always done, and midwives were the people who attended them. So yeah, that that association is still there, and there are midwives still practicing that way. Ninety-five percent of midwives are attending births in the hospital. And, you know, they're, they're attending 10 to 15% of the births across the country. And it would also be supported by evidence to hire a doula for your birth, no matter what you do. So definitely check that out as well. Hopefully that's helpful. Warrants a conversation between you and your husband. I hope you can start from that perspective that um, you both have to put a little more stock into what you want and where you feel safest and then work hard together to try to get on the, the same page from there. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. So one way that we've been getting a lot of our questions recently is through our Instagram stories and our little Ask Me Anything tab. So we encourage you to keep submitting your quick questions that way. So here's a quick one that um, women are always curious about in pregnancy. Can I take a bath? And if so, how hot? Yes, absolutely. You can take a bath. Um, this is one of the first questions people always ask me in, in prenatal care because, you know, those warning signs everywhere you go where there's a hot tub that say no pregnant women allowed. Oh yeah, that's right. So what's women, the concern? Women get really freaked out about temperature. What are they worried about? What could happen? Well, you don't want to overheat. You don't want to like your body. faint. Yeah. But is so there any risk to the baby if you're submerged in really hot water? If your core body temperature gets up really, really high for too long of a period of time, sure, there's risk. But most... We don't, time, we don't, we're not going to do don't, that to ourselves. We don't bathe that way. We don't bathe that way. I mean, yeah. So that's why the recommendation is to not sit in the, the hot tubs, which are generally 104 degrees. We generally don't take baths of that temperature either. So absolutely, baths during pregnancy are totally fine. Um, they can be really alleviating of some of the discomforts of pregnancy. They can be relaxing. I encourage them. Um, you take baths all the time. I take baths every day. <laughs> Yeah, pregnant or not. Um, when it comes to pregnancy, we are more prone to getting lightheaded or feeling exhausted. Um, so you do need to be a little bit more temperature aware and just listen, listen to your body. The only other thing I would say is that late in pregnancy, when your center of gravity is really kind of out of, out of balance, mm -hmm. you need to be careful getting in and out of the bath. And I would always recommend that you use like a nonstick mat and just be cautious. It's kind of like common sense. If you're starting to get overheated, if you're starting to feel thirsty, if you're starting to feel a little lightheaded, get out. 
cool off. If drink some water. If you don't feel good in the bath, get out. Well, just stop it, darn it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it. Just, Switch to a shower. It's Don't they say the same thing about sleep positions? Oh, yeah. So that was in the same series of questions. Can I sleep on my back? Oh, I get that one okay. all the time, too. I, I think that one is so funny because it actually uh, like presumes that we're aware of how we're sleeping all night. I mean, like, how mm. often do you think you actually roll onto your back in the middle of the night and we sleep that way for hours without even being aware, whether we're pregnant or not? All the time, all right? The t- all the time. I mean, if, if, if it were unsafe to be on your back, we would be having a lot more complications in pregnancy. Now, that concept comes from the fact that as your uterus grows, as your baby grows, your uterus gets more and more heavy. And that when you're on your back, the weight of the uterus is pressing on the vena cava. So as the uterus grows bigger and the weight of the baby gets heavier, when you're on your back, especially if you're on a hard surface, that weight can put pressure on the venous return. So as the blood is you know, pumping through your body and coming back to your heart, the weight of the uterus can put some pressure on that and that, that venous return can slow down. So that's what the concern is. But you actually would begin to feel lightheaded first before your baby was experiencing any type of decreased blood supply. Well, you're sleeping in this scenario. So what do you mean feeling lightheaded? So if you're laying on your back and uh-huh. you're not sleeping, for okay. example, women will often talk about, you know, being on their backs um, and they'll get lightheaded. You always want to be a little bit propped to the side. If you are feeling lightheaded, that is a sign that you need to shift your weight. But again, we probably fall, we all probably roll onto our backs in the night when we're pregnant all the time. And this doesn't cause problems. When I was pregnant with my daughter, Vanessa, I was on my back all the time. There was, was almost more, no way around it. Because it was just more comfortable? It was, yeah. It was like the, almost the only thing that was comfortable. And I, and again, my, yeah, like so, I heard that it's, it's okay. Like I would yeah. be the first one to wake up if it was an That's issue. Right. That's right. Because is there any chance though, like something, what's the concern exactly? The concern is just that you could potentially decrease the perfusion of blood to the baby because the weight of the uterus is pressing on the venous return. Sleeping on your side is preferable, but if it's not comfortable, like you said, you were on your back, you can always put just a little, roll up a little towel or a small pillow, just prop it under one hip. A slight angle. So you are slightly angled. I mean, mattresses aren't really hard surfaces. This is more of an issue on a really hard surface. The the effect of it is stronger, but I think it's a lot more of a, a fear than it is fact. Legitimate cause yeah, or for legitimate concern. Yeah, concern. Yep. Trisha, in our last Q&A, the golden hour came up, and we got a question on that, maybe because of that last episode, but can you, can we do this one? Yeah, so... Do you want me to read it? Yeah, why don't you read it? I've been wondering if you could talk more about the golden hour and how much it affects your relationship with your baby. My husband held my baby up to my face shortly after birth, but I wasn't able to hold him for about two hours. I was put under to deal with complications with his C-section. It took around two months to establish breastfeeding, which I'm guessing is in part due to missing this initial time with him. But I've heard people attribute problems with their teenagers to missing the golden hour. So I was wondering if you could talk about what really is connected with the golden hour and also what moms who miss it can do to help with that relationship. Wow, holy way to put pressure on ourselves. I've never heard that. Have you heard anyone say that before? 
Well, I think what's happening right now is there's so much emphasis on the importance of the skin-to-skin bonding that mom and baby should have right after birth, which is great that we're talking about it because prior to this sort of movement of the importance of the golden hour, we know that moms and babies were being separated at birth. And now there is this big push and this big movement to make sure that moms and babies are skin to skin and stay together in those first hours after birth. But the downside of that is that women who aren't able to do that for whatever reason are feeling that they're missing out on something that's irretrievable. That is, and that that's heartbreaking to is, me that anyone would is, feel that way. Exactly. That's ex- exactly how it makes me feel to think that you would carry that feeling of guilt through your life all the way through teenagehood and, you know, take it back to that moment that you weren't able to bond with your baby um, is, is really sad. And if that's the message that women are getting about the golden hour, then we are, then we are talking about this in the wrong way. Oh man. Okay. I think the most important thing for any parent to know is bonding always happens. The big picture here is, is this child born to a safe and loving home. That's it. That's what's going to determine your child's character, your child's life. That's what matters. It's ideal. It's optimal if we get to enjoy that bonding in the beginning, but by no means is that going to develop your child's character. Do we want to worry about being a perfectionist about any of this? Sometimes the smartest and most loving thing you can do is hand that baby over if that baby needs any kind of medical intervention. My very best friend from college had her twins at 31 weeks. They were two pounds, three ounces, and three pounds, two ounces. And they had to bond with machines. There was no way around that. They had to, I believe it was eight weeks and 10 weeks. And what choice was there? You have to do that. What do you mean eight weeks and 10 weeks? I I think one baby got to go home after eight weeks and the other one after 10 weeks. That was a hard moment when they had to leave that last one behind for two more weeks. But you know what? She is so emotionally intelligent, so loving. She's in a a good relationship, a good marriage. These children are now 12 years old, loving, kind, empathetic. I mean, she once showed me a letter that her son wrote her when he was nine, and it blew my mind how empathetic and how he was. So you never have to draw conclusions like this. What really affects a child, as you know from your own childhood, is not, we, most of us don't even know what that first hour of life was like. And pretty much none of us, for the most part, did enjoy the golden hour ourselves in these past decades. But the question is, what was that upbringing? Was it a safe and loving home? So we have to take the pressure off of moms here. Yeah, nature would be doing us a great disservice if that first two hours of life were that critical for our emotional and social well-being throughout our lifetime. That that would never work. So... Um, I think as we say in yoga, if it's available to you, then you do it. And if it's not, such as in the case of this mother who was, was, it wasn't the babies that were her baby that was an issue. It was that she needed to go have her own um, medical issues tended to. The baby can be placed skin to skin with the father Mm -hmm. or the partner. And that is just as good. The purpose really of this golden hour is to keep mom's and babies or or fathers and babies together. The reason that that's helpful is because it helps, we've, we've talked about this previously, but just to kind of reiterate it, it helps with temperature regulation for the baby. It helps with initiating the first feeding. It helps um, produce oxytocin in both 
the mother and the baby and that that initial rush of oxytocin is really helpful for um, slowing down the mother's bleeding post-birth as it helps the uterus contract. It also helps the baby be exposed to the healthy bacteria from the mother and the mother's skin and everything around them on their body. Um, It is recommended that moms and babies be skin to skin immediately following birth. But again, we can't twist this into some, you know, overemphasized, special, unique, irretrievable hour that if you miss it, you've missed this golden window of opportunity. So I don't love the name, the golden hour. It's just... It sounds very finite. Like this is your chance. It's not like that. Yeah. In an effort to promote the skin to skin concept and all the benefits of not separating mom and baby, this golden hour concept has been overly um, idealized on the internet and on social media. Oh, one other point about this question that we didn't touch on is she mentioned that it took around two months to establish breastfeeding, which she thought might be attributed to having missed this golden hour. And I just want to say that that is probably not the case. There are probably other things that happened um, that made breastfeeding difficult to establish, and there could be a whole slew of those things. But I'd like you to just not feel um, so much pressure about this two hours of time. And as far as we know, we there's just nothing to say that missing that golden hour with your baby has any impact on your relationship with your child in toddlerhood or in the teenage years. Teens are just teens. Teens are for teens. God's sake. No matter what we do, they're hard. We think the twos are bad. The teenage years, man. <laughs> they are. They're they're like from a different planet. I thought twos were harder. Did you really? Yeah. They're just, I guess, different. Hard in different ways. We haven't met ourselves as teens. We all look back with our own memories of like thinking it was all so smooth, but maybe we had emotional moments that our parents were just like, oh boy. Of course of we course. did. So of course we did. We have to allow that as well. I just, you know, I, you just really got to take the teenage years with a lightheartedness. Yeah. Just oh yeah. Not take it too seriously. Sense of humor is yes, key. Totally. Well, I think that's a wrap for today's okay. episode. Yeah, we we covered a lot of good stuff today. Thank you to our listeners for writing in with your questions. We really love hearing from you. And it's super fun to be able to answer your questions in our shows. And I have to say, it is so much fun when you guys tag us on Instagram. Thank you so much for that. It's so much fun to just say, oh my gosh, there's this person is connecting with us. And now we feel we can connect back and picture you when we when we post these episodes. We love to know who's listening. And I have to say the most fun thing about doing this podcast is is connecting with all of these new people that we're that we're reaching out to and we're reaching out to us and the people we're getting to know and the people we're bringing on the show and Mm -hmm. it's just like your whole world is just like expanding in such fun ways wonderful it's amazing how many like-minded people there are and we just haven't all met each other yet right Right. it's it's like basic human desire to connect Mm -hmm. bam If you enjoyed our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share a favorite episode or two. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Down to Birth Show or contact us and review show notes at downtobirthshow.com. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always... Hear everyone and listen to yourself.
No, it just depends on where where they are in the universe. And where they are in the universe. <laughs> where they are in the universe. It's, um, it just, can you be more specific, please? <laughs> Um, okay, so you know it, it. It's really dependent on whether it's longitudinal or le- le- whether longitudinal, longitudinal. <laughs> <laughs> can Mercury please go out of retrograde so I can get my speech back? Stop blaming everything on Mercury uh, retrograde. I know, but it's such an easy excuse. I don't even know what it means. It just means that everything gets effed up. Oh come on, for a while. That is so lame. I know what we're all going to just say it's you don't even know what mercury <laughs> retrograde is you just keep saying it it's an astrological phenomenon where my husband whatever. as you know majored no, he, in astrophysics you were supposed to ask him about it and I will ask him about it Please, because help me he under, doesn't have the answer help me understand we're it I just know that everybody says that oh it's, it's mercury <laughs> retrograde I don't know what's up I don't know what's wrong with me today <laughs> it's, I wish that mercury retrograde would just go away already it's, it's an easy excuse it works <laughs>